No other document has had such a great influence on Western culture than the Ten Commandments. Many rulers, many nations established their legal system based upon these biblical laws that were included as the Ten Commandments. Even including our own nation did that. John Adams even wrote, As much as I love, esteem, and admire the Greeks, I believe the Hebrews have done more to enlighten and civilize the world. Moses did more than all of their legislators and philosophers. And I think he was dead on about that. That is absolutely right. It's funny, in 1929, the White Plains New York reporter observed, no man in more than 2,000 years has been able to improve upon the Ten Commandments as the rule of life. I think that's interesting that that was a reporting. You think about how much has moved since 1929 to have that declaration made to where we are right now. Harvard Law School professor Alan Dershowitz said the Ten Commandments are clearly a precursor to all Western law, including American law. That's the essence, really, then. The the Ten Commandments are fundamental laws for the Scriptures. And... When you read the Ten Commandments, and in fact, not only the Ten Commandments, but the subsequent three chapters that come after that as God gives His laws to Israel, we should consider that those laws truly do function in a sense like our Constitution functions for the United States. And that this is what God is giving toward the people, and it is a wonderful starting point for the means by which to discover who God is and what God wants for His people. By no means is it all that a person is supposed to know about God and God did not intend it that way but it is a starting point and gives you the umbrella idea of what God intends for his people to do and I do believe it is important to understand the Ten Commandments particularly because we cannot understand what God is calling for the people to do throughout the prophets or have a basis of understanding of what Jesus is teaching when he's on the earth or even understand the framework by which the apostles go into all the world preaching the gospel until you understand the very constitution and framework of God's law that existed for more than a thousand years and that ruled Judaism and ruled the people of God. One of the things that we talked about this morning is that it is something that's been neglected regarding the Old Testament. And yet, to not understand the groundwork and the framework of what God is doing and describing these commandments then leaves us really at a great disadvantage when we come to the Sermon on the Mount and listen to Jesus' words as He now proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. To really get a grasp of what He's saying and what He's teaching really does require then this foundation. When we study this over the next uh, few weeks, it will be my intention not only to understand this in its original context, but also to recognize what the Ten Commandments have in terms of value for the uh, Christian and what this means for our lives as well. And so as we go forward with our study, each of these commandments we'll look at and talk about then, well, what does this mean for the life of the Christian? Do we just simply read these things and go, well, there's absolutely no value whatsoever? I hope after this morning's lesson you'll answer, no, there must be value. That's the whole intention of what Jesus is describing when he preaches to the people. But as we begin our, our study here, and we're going to talk about the first commandment here in a few minutes, but you really cannot start at Exodus 20. That's 
would be really terribly misleading because we need to consider some of the things about the nature of the Ten Commandments as well as the setting regarding the Ten Commandments. The nature of the Ten Commandments is really important in that ancient laws were never intended to be exhaustive. And that's usually been the case throughout the centuries for all legal systems. And it's really been a modern convention that has come along that attempts to try to uh, describe and specifically state every single thing that is a violation of the law. That's why our law system is really out of control now because we have to codify every single thing that could potentially be wrong because if you don't specify it, then you have a loophole and you get out of it. That's where our legal society is. Ancient Near Eastern civilizations and law codes were never that way. They were always considered a model that you were to take this as an overview, a model of things that they didn't sit down and try to say, let me give you all the things that are violations of God's law, or this is all the violations of the Assyrian law, or these are all the violations of Hammurabi's code. That's not what they ever did. It was always considered a model. And on the basis of that model, what they expected people to do was to be able to look at the model and find the closest representative law to deal with the situation they are in and apply it to that situation. In that regard, then, in ancient Near Eastern codes, there was never a loophole and there was never a technicality. You can never go to the law and say, well, it did address this specific thing, so therefore it doesn't apply to me. That's not how those laws worked. And any attempt to try to narrowly define a particular law is then breaking the very heart of what the law code was about. Because it was never intended for you to read it and go, okay, well, there's the the ten, and so as long as I only do those ten with the narrowest definition, therefore I've kept it. And you didn't do that with any of the ancient documents or any of the ancient law codes at all. To recognize that, so when a crime was committed, you would sit down and go, now which law fits the best? Now the reason why I think it's important, and I hope then that you will consider the basis of why that's useful, is then... When we recognize that laws then were not given to name every single violation or to name every single crime, consider how often that's been attempted with the scriptures itself. Where you will go to a text and go, well, it only talked about the men there, so what does that mean for the women? You might have heard that in a Bible class sometime. It only says the men. That's not how ancient documents worked and legal codes worked. What applied to one applied to all. And what then is even more important is that if it was anything close, it counted as a violation. You wouldn't be able to read it and go, okay, well that specifies this, so this means it's okay if I go right up to that line and therefore it would be okay. The whole idea was that if anything got in the general sphere of what that law was talking about, then you were guilty of that law. And so again, to remember that that's the sense of what the Ten Commandments are doing and to recognize that the Ten Commandments are not unusual in that. And it's always important when we study to put ourselves back in the context of how things were said and the kind of understanding that took place. The Ten Commandments would be that as well as any of those ancient Near Eastern law codes. The scriptures do tell us that, though. 
For example, you remember with the uh, works of the flesh in Galatians 5.21, and it's talking about all of these different sins. Do you remember how Paul has, decides to end that? And things like these. That was the whole idea. Is that anything close to the concepts that are laid out in the law code are obviously violations. And Paul even does that in Galatians 5 as if you were to say, okay, now that I've read these particular ones, therefore, if it's not exactly that, it must be okay. Not at all. Anything even like these. So that was the nature of the Ten Commandments and it was the nature of the law code that was given. We live in such a society right now that intends to read laws for loopholes. I mean, we really are all about that. If there's some way that law doesn't apply to me, let me try to wiggle my way around it. That idea is very useful because it gives a greater gravity to what the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees are doing in the days of Jesus and why we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount why Jesus is punching them about what they're doing with the law because it was never the intention to say, well, as long as honor father and mother, so at least I'm nice to them, but, you know, well, I paid my money to the Corbin, so therefore I didn't break that rule. Anything close, anything in the realm was considered a violation. And that's why Jesus is always addressing them on that basis that have you not read? You know what the scriptures say. You know the intention. It was never intended for technicality. And it was never intended for loopholes. To go along with that, before you can move into chapter 20, it's important to get a sense of the setting. I think it's important to recognize that the Ten Commandments are not in Exodus chapter 1. But you don't have God coming to Israel and saying, all right, thou shalt not, you know, right out of the gate. Let me just lay down all of these laws and lay down all of these rules before you. Before any of that happens, you have 19 chapters. And think about a significant portion. Half of the book is given before the Ten Commandments even arrive. And in those 19 chapters, you have God saving the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery providing for them in the wilderness and then leading them to this moment as they come to Sinai. And so it's not just simply, oh, hi, I'm the Lord, obey me. 19 chapters, you have God doing mighty works. You have God coming to the people through these miracles and the plagues and the mighty signs that Moses and Aaron did. And then not only that, but then the parting of the Red Sea. And then provisions in the wilderness as they make their way to Sinai. Much has happened before we get to this moment when God now is going to come to them and give them these laws. In fact, in chapter 19 and verse 3 of Exodus, you'll notice that Moses then is going up to God. And what God tells Moses to do in verses 11 through 14 is to prepare the people. You need to get them ready. And so there are directives given that he tells Moses, Moses, you go down and you make sure the people are ready for this moment. And then notice what is about to happen. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So here is the moment. Moses, get the people ready. And on the third day, I'm coming. And so now things get somewhat terrifying. The mountain now has the this cloud about it. The very loud trumpet blast blows and thunders and lightnings are rattling the place. 
And notice verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. That's what's happening right here. Moses brings the people out of the camp and they approach the mountain with the thunder and the lightning and the thick cloud and and the loud trumpet blast. And here it is. The people now are going to come and they are going to meet God. And it says they're in verse 17 and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18. "Now Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the trumpet sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Wow. This is the moment to meet God. And as Moses speaks... The thundering of God begins to shake the place as God is going now to speak to them. I want you to consider then in that moment, what is God going to say? Because what this is then is the introduction of God. This is the framework by which we need to understand the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is not God just appearing and saying, all right, here I am. Do this, do this, do this ten times through. Do this and don't do this. This is God telling the people, here's what you need to know about me. The people have come out of the camp to meet God. They do not know this God yet. As we traverse through the book of Exodus, all that we have is a promise to them that I will deliver them. Promises made to the fathers. I'm going to deliver you from this. And now it is the moment that they are going to meet God. And God is not just simply telling rules, but it is an opportunity to understand the very character of God. This is the constitution of Israel that reveals the very nature of God. And that puts then the Ten Commandments in a very different light, because what you are going to read about and what you are listening to then should be in our hearts and in our minds far more than just simply a revealing of do's and don'ts. But to really get a sense that here is God who has come to meet His people, who has come to reveal Himself to these people, to show Himself to them, and He's going to reveal Himself through the decrees that are given in these commandments. And that is what sets up the the beginning so, so powerfully. Chapter 20 and verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Not Moses. And we've just noticed a moment ago when Moses spoke, God answered with thunder. And now chapter 20 opens. We're now ready for God to meet the people and for the people to meet God. And it says that now God spoke all of these words. It's interesting that these are not called the Ten Commandments here. You might notice that. just They're simply called the words. In fact, that's traditionally what they've been called is the Ten Words. They're just the words. It's later in the book of Exodus chapter 34 that they'll be called the Ten Commandments. As well as over in Deuteronomy chapter 4, these things will be called the Ten Commandments. Commandments. But for now, these are just simply the words of God. This is just the description of God. This is God revealing himself to the people. And now what is God going to say? 
Here, I want the people to come and be ready to know me. I'm going to meet the people. The people are going to now meet me. What will God say? Listen to the very first sentence that God declares. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I want you to notice that God begins in a framework of grace. I am the God that saved you. I am the God that delivered you. I am the God that took you out of Egyptian slavery. I am the God who brought you out of that land. I am the one who has rescued you. And so what a great picture that God is giving here is that rather than just simply coming in and saying, I'm stronger than you and you better listen to me because I'm going to make you scared. He comes and says, I'm the one that saved you. Before we even get to any of the commandments, here's a reminder of, you know what I did. I have fulfilled my promise that I made to your fathers that I would take you out of this land, that I would deliver you from the land of Egypt. And so this is what happens. And this is so much the framework of how the New Testament operates as well, where we're given this picture of we have been set free to be able to serve God. In Exodus, the picture is you have been set free from Egypt and set free from the land of slavery so that now you can worship and serve your God. And the New Testament will come along like in Galatians and do the exact same thing. You've been set free from sin. And you've been set free what? Well, I love how the Apostle Paul uses in chapter 5. You haven't been set free to sin. You've been set free to serve. You've been set free to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all of your heart. Which I hope that you would get a sense that how often people have tried to separate grace and law and make them like mutually exclusive things as if you have law then that means you don't have grace and I want you to see before the giving of the Ten Commandments there is a reminder of grace in fact that is always the way God operates and that God operates by saying I did this for you I saved you and now this is what should be done on on that basis That law is driven from the grace that God has shown these people. That God has come and saved them. He has delivered them from their affliction and their oppression. And so now these are the laws that are given by God. And are given them as a picture of a way that they would be able to come to know and understand God. In fact, I would say it this way. That we would look at the Ten Commandments and understand them as the gateway for life. Now this is what God is saying. If you want life, I have set you free. If you want to remain in that freedom and you want to enjoy this relationship with this God who loves you and has saved you and rescued you, then these are the things that you are to do. I talked about this with my uh, kids at camp and I know I have with you as well, that too often God's laws are looked at as the fence keeping you in from all the fun things you want to go be doing. And that's not the framework that God gave law. And that's not the framework here. Notice the beginning is, I'm the Lord your God who saved you. I rescued you. I delivered you from your slavery. Before I tell you anything about what must be done, I'm putting you in a position to be appreciative. Because God has done something first. And the scriptures are always pushing on that point. That God acts first and then we respond to that. 
Book of Romans does that all the time. When while we were still sinners, Christ died. God acted first. We love God, 1 John, because He first loved us. Always a response to what God has accomplished. God has acted. God has been gracious. God has done something to deliver us. There is now an equal response that comes from us. And so the whole point then is that God is worthy of our obedience. But notice that it's not that we are he we are that he is worthy of our obedience out of some kind of debt. I think it's useful that the text here, nor anywhere else, does God come along and say, I saved you, therefore you owe me. <laughs> you know, we kind of do that with humans, right? I did this for you, so you owe me. You know, I, you're on the hood. But you notice that never God never operates that way. He never comes along and says, Alright, you guys owe me. I sent my son. You owe me big time. Notice what he's operating on the basis of. But he's operating on the basis of love. That why wouldn't you want to respond to me because of what what I've done? Look at what I've accomplished for you. Look at how I've intervened on your behalf. And he is worthy of our obedience because by his grace he has saved us. This is the framework of the Ten Commandments. It is the framework of grace that initiates it, that God is saying, I rescued you. And the response then of His people of obedience is one of love. It is one that is appreciative of what God has done. Now we'll bring in bring in that command, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. The word before is pretty interesting because it sets up an idea that there is not to be any other gods in his presence. It's almost literally saying in his face is the idea. No other gods in his face. Now imagine where is the presence of God? What would be in his face? Everywhere. Yes, that's the whole issue at hand, is when you have the almighty God who is above all things and creator of all things, and says, now I don't want any other gods in front of me. I don't want any other gods in my presence. I don't want any other gods in my sight. Then that pretty well rules out all gods. And that's the whole point that this is getting at, is that God begins with Israel by saying, you're supposed to be exclusive to me. Your devotion is to be exclusive to me because I saved you. And what God is doing in the midst of this, by in the very beginning, by declaring this, is He is creating His holy people. You think about this very first commandment. Right away what God is attempting to do is make this people His holy nation, His, his kingdom of priests. Because notice back in chapter 19 and in verse 6, this is what He's told them to do. Back up to verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the introduction to the Ten Commandments. Before the people come out to meet God, Moses, go tell the people, you are to obey the covenant because you're going to be my kingdom of priests and you're going to be my holy nation. And the words that are being declared are to bring about this holy nation. The first thing that is required of his people then is to have allegiance to the Lord alone. 
that they will have no other gods before him, no other gods before his face. It is so interesting that this is the way that God operates because that has not been found so far any other ancient law code that has ever prohibited the worship of other gods. But God's law is unique. He comes along and he gives his constitution to Israel and describes to them, here's your law code. The very first rule is you cannot worship any other gods. No other gods in my presence. I demand for you to be exclusive. I want your allegiance to me and to me alone. And think about how that is a thread throughout all of the scriptures that takes you as a thread all the way to the very end of the scriptures because you come to Revelation 2 and what's Jesus then yelling at the church at Ephesus about? You've left your first love. You have other gods. You have other desires. You have other things that you're involved in and you have not made God everything before you. And God just doesn't share. Something that we'll get a little bit later on. He's going to say, I'm a jealous God. And that jealousy is a good jealousy that we'll talk about when we get to the second commandment. But to have an awareness that God does not share. He does not allow us to say, well, at least he's number two in my life. He's number three. He's high on the list. But I want you to also hear, he doesn't allow us to say, Lord, you're number one, and here's two and three and four and five of all these other things. No other gods in my presence means nothing else but me alone. You think about how often Jesus was saying that to people who were trying to follow him. You want to be my disciple, what do you have to do? You have to give it all up. He didn't say, well, just go ahead and make me number one and get everything else in a lower priority and I'll be happy with that. It is to be God alone and nothing else. Our desire would be for God alone and for absolutely nothing else. God cannot be first, but then have all of our other gods in our back pocket that we occasionally serve and cherish. We'll see that picture all throughout scriptures. You'll see that like with Rachel and household gods. Oh, sure, we're serving the true and living God, but I've got my little trinket gods over here in the camel inside in the pocket. And we want to do that with God. Oh, God's my one and only God, but I have all these other little things here in the corner. Well, they're secondary. God doesn't allow for secondary. That's as much as like saying, well, I love my wife, number one, and I only have a mistress here or there on the side on occasion. It's all or nothing with God. It's all or nothing in marriage. And that's the whole point that God's getting. You can't have other desires. You desire me and you desire nothing else. Otherwise, I'm not sharing with you. It's not going to work for God. And so this is the picture that God gives of the very first thing. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. No one but me. I'm the one that saved you. Did your God save you? No. Did they rescue you from Egypt? No. Did they bring you out of slavery? No. And the weight of that should be so true for us. 
What desires that you have put your life into that you think are so valuable and so important? Did they save you from sin? Have they made you the promise of eternity? Are they giving you the hope of eternal life? Are they going to be the ones to rescue you? No, they will not be. And that's why God says it's me alone. You have no other gods before me because I am the one that has saved you. I am the one that has rescued you. I am the one that has given you life. I am the one that has set you free. How dare you turn to any other objects of desire as God alone? That means there needs to be a test for idolatry that we need to consider for ourselves. There's a lot of ways to test for idolatry in the heart. John Calvin, I think, said it pretty well when he said Our, the human heart is an idol factory. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, we're always worshiping something. We're always desiring something. People who think, oh, I don't worship God. If you don't worship the true living God, you worship some God. That's just the nature of who we are. We are worshipers. We worship something. We put our all into something. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we love? What do we love? And the way to examine that is just to kind of look, well, what are the things that you think about? What are the things that you desire? What are the things that you get excited about? Things you spend your money on? These are easy tests to consider. If God alone is our, our desire, am I most excited about spiritual things? Am I most excited about God? Is His interest what really matters the most to me? Am I excited about reading His Word? Am I excited about worship? Do I love serving the Lord? Or do I get excited about something else? Other things excite me. And okay, yeah, God's got a you know decent excitement level meter. But the other things in life I'm so excited about. We get all excited about really the dumbest things. I'm going to throw myself at the, you know, San Diego Chargers. That's really dumb. Who cares? They're going to stink every year. So why am I getting so excited about it? Who cares? The passion that we often put into the other things of this world. Are we that passionate for God? Are we as passionate about God that we show passion in work or in school or in uh, any kind of hobby that we might have or interest that we have? We get so into all of these other things. And here's God going, it's me alone. You have passion for everything else. But what about me? God's supposed to be the supreme desire. And we are passionate about other things, it shows that we have idols. It shows that our hearts are tied to the things of this world rather than the things of God. Second with that, a way to know if we are part of idolatry is what do we trust? And what I'm asking about that is just simply when trouble strikes, where do you turn? Because that is often revealing where you trust and where your idol is. As you know, when trouble strikes, it's easy to turn to just about everything else but God. Trouble hits, problems strike, things are a mess. We turn to sinful outcomes, sinful addictions, or addiction in general. Turn to medication, or turn to family, turn to friends, or most often we turn to self. I'll get me out of this. I know what's best. That's why we talk so often about like, the problem of prayer because prayer reveals if God is really your fortress and really your rock and really your strength do you turn to God first in the midst of crisis or is God the God of last resort I've tried addiction and medication and sexual morality and family and friends and myself and I have no answer I guess we should try God I won't work for God God alone God is to be everything he is supposed to be our hope he is supposed to be our refuge. 
What does this mean then in the New Testament? What does this mean for us as well? One of the things that I think is fascinating is that there is a very strong parallel between Sinai and the Mount of Transfiguration that is definitely intended when Jesus takes three, Peter, James, and John, and brings them to the Mount of Transfiguration. And what is particularly interesting about that is if you remember, you have here in the book of Exodus that Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and as he goes up the mountain, he's preparing the people to be able to meet God, and then God... God speaks the Ten Commandments. When we come now to Mark chapter 9 and verse 7, you read then this Mount of Transfiguration scene. Here is Jesus and the three apostles, and now God is going to speak again. But consider what God speaks. One sentence. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Here's the sum of the commandments. Listen to Him. Whatever he says, that's what you do. Just as Mount Sinai has the scene, we go up before the mountain and God speaks, here's what you shall do. No other gods before me. And he goes through the whole list. Now, Peter, James, and John come to the mountain and God just simply says, that's my beloved son. You listen to him. The reason why that's so important is if, if you remember, this is the argument the apostles make in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, that you follow exactly what they say. They say, you know, we didn't come up with clever myths or anything like that. We beheld His glory, and we were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You read them and go, what does the transfiguration have to do with being carried along by the Holy Spirit and following what they say? That... Because the transfiguration is, that's my son, listen to him. And the apostles are saying, we received this Holy Spirit from him and you listen to us. We didn't come make up this thing. We didn't tell you cleverly devised myths. We have the prophetic word. That's the sure thing that you have in your life. And that's why they make that connection. Is we saw him and we beheld his glory and we heard the words on the mountain. And what we are telling you is the words of the son. It's always been so funny. People be like, well, they follow the red letters of the Bible. That's Matthew 1, 1, all the way to Revelation at the very end. That's all red letters. That's Jesus to, through the Holy Spirit telling the apostles, here's what you write down. This is all Jesus. It's all of his message. The writer of Hebrews said the same thing. In the past, God spoke it many times and in many ways, but now He's spoken through His Son, and His Son was the final word. And again, that's the argument those apostles are making, Second Peter 1. We have the final revealed word of God. There is nobody to come to you and say, well, I've got a message for you from God. The apostles were given the only message, and that has been declared then to us as they wrote it down, that He is the final word. As we looked at this morning then, in Matthew five seventeen through 20, we know from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And we know some interesting things that Jesus would say when people would come to him and ask him about the commandments and what needs to be done. And one of them that we know very well, like in Matthew 22, verse 37, when Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments and said, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
And I want you to understand when Jesus says those words, if you want to be with God and you want to be in His kingdom and you are a disciple and you are a follower of Him, that to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind means you have no other gods before Him. That's exactly what that looks like. You love Him not with 95% of your heart. You love Him and Him alone with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the whole idea that Jesus is getting at. That's why it can be summed up in those words. And Jesus is fulfilling the very thing that God was commanding from the very start of Israel's history. That we must pursue the Lord alone. For we are not allowed to have any other gods in His presence. There can be no competition that can exist before Him. So have we made something else more important than God Himself? Are we pursuing things in life rather than devoting ourselves fully and zealously to a pursuit of the Lord our God who has saved us and rescued us from our sins? What do you desire? What is your passion? What do you hope for in life? Where does your joy come from? These are great ways to look and consider. Do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind? Because we are not allowed to have any other gods before Him. We're going to sing a song and we invite you to come to Jesus. And in the invitation of coming to Jesus, hear the words of what Jesus Himself was always telling them, you must deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. It is a death to the old way of living. It is a death to the idols. It is an end of pursuing the things that we find valuable in this life in the pursuit of God alone. This is why Jesus, when people come and say, well, I'll follow you, just let me do this, that, and whatever first. Jesus goes, no. You've got to leave it all behind right now. But why wouldn't you? He's the one that saved you. It makes no sense to pursue the things of this world first and then hope to get around to God one day. Jesus has saved you from your sins. He died on the cross before we even came into existence because He desired for us to love Him and to serve Him because of that great act of love and mercy. Will you give your life to Jesus tonight? Turn away from those sins. Break those idols down. Confess Jesus to be the Son of God that you will obey and follow all the days of your life. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. We come and do that now while we stand.